When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. We're going to devote this entire episode to the great Prince, who died last week at the age of 57. We're going to talk about some of our favorite Prince songs and also a lost interview by one of our reporters. Today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code MUSIC. We're going to start with a very special edition of what we're listening to, devoted to Prince. I'm here with Rob Sheffield, contributing editor, Rolling Stone. Hey, Nathan. Hey, Rob. And John Dolan, contributing editor and record reviews editor. Hey, Hey, John. Hey. Let's just talk about what we're listening to, what Prince songs. We've all been working on the next issue of Rolling Stone where Prince is on the cover and a lot of stuff for the website. Rob, you wrote an incredible essay about Prince on rollingstone.com. What have you been listening to? The song I keep coming back to is is The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, which is from Sign of the Times, which is my favorite Prince record. Along with 1999, those two are like the titans for me. One is a boy who's like discovering the world and-, and Kind of on either pole, right? Like yeah. definite the range. Sign yeah. of the Times is a grown man who like doesn't understand why everything is so difficult. And there are all these great pained uh, love ballads on the record, especially that whole suite on side three. It's funny that Ballad of Dorothy Parker sounds like it should be on side three of that album, mm. but it's like a little taster on side one. Right. Uh, Foreshadowing. Yeah. If I Was Your Girlfriend is on that album, and Strange Ugh. Relationship, and I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which has got to be one of the weirdest top 40 singles of the 80s <laughs> decade. That was nothing but weird top 40 singles. But The Ballad of Dorothy Parker, it's a crazy Prince. Well, it's a Prince song about bonding with an attractive stranger who, who whom he does not sleep with, which uh, made it a real formal breakthrough for, for him at the time. <laughs> They take a bubble bath with their pants on. And you know, meanwhile, he's fighting with his girlfriend. He says, ooh, I'm leaving my pants on because I'm kind of going with someone. And they're sort of just negotiating the boundaries. They're talking. They're listening. They're laughing. She makes him laugh. They listen to Joni Mitchell together. Her phone rings, and she doesn't answer it because whoever's calling couldn't be as cute as you, which is the last time in human history a girl has ever said this. And uh, after just a night of hanging out with Dorothy Parker, he has this whole new perspective on who he is and his relationship with his girlfriend. And he goes back to his girlfriend and they take a bubble bath with their pants on. It's really just a very economical, it's a song with a lot of emotional depth to it in uh, just a really short space. And it's this really moody, computer blue kind of R&B. It's just an absolutely mind-boggling song. And it exemplifies the kind of song that Prince wrote that nobody else wrote. I mean, nobody else could have written a song like that. Amen. I mean, so many of his most beautiful songs are beautiful in such weird ways. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, you mentioned I, If I Was Your Girlfriend from that album. That's probably my favorite. What so a great gorgeous. Song. Yeah. John, what have you been listening to, or, or do you have a 
all-time favorite print song? This is this is a two-part question. Yeah, I mean, I think my all-time favorite is well, I did listen to like the first just because I wanted to hear kind of effortless greatness, just bang, bang, bang these singles, and so I wanted to listen to that first just disc of the hits thing because it's just like he's the only person, solo artist, I think, you know, the only artist, I guess, or band or whatever, who could do that many songs like that in a row like that. And it's like, you know, the Beatles, it's like as great as hits goes, it goes up against the Beatles. But there was just, there was just one of him, you know, he's the only person who had, who's be able to, to could do all these things and just himself. Um, well, I think as, my, as I said, as, as he said at the, the last time I saw him at Madison Square Garden, too many hits. He just had too many <laughs> hits. And you get to as like, he was like uh, dancing on the like, piano. I think I mean, those shows- or something. Some of the songs that are the greatest are in the third, you know, disc or whatever, but like, I think the the song that resonates at least resonates the most with me now, and it's going to change because I'm going to go back and listen to things I haven't listened to for a while. But is is Uptown? I grew up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I was spent all yesterday just looking at talking to people, talking to friends, and and looking at things. And you know, people gathered around First Avenue in Minneapolis. It was so packed in there that where he filmed Purple Rain and played some of these shows. It was so packed in there, you, the people couldn't move on the street and they were just singing his songs. And First Avenue had an all night dance party that started at 11 and went till eight in the morning of all print songs. And so Uptown is the song about the Uptown. It's a little area in, in South Min- in, in Minneapolis, which is kind of this, he makes it this kind of utopian place where kind of culture is all going to take off. He says, white, black, Puerto Rican, everyone's just a freak. And we're, you know, it's going to be this sort of place where everyone's going to get together and we're going to sort of remake, you know, culture, I guess, a little bit. And it starts off, it's on Dirty Mind, which is an album that sonically really does seem to be, it's it's like weird how it's just a couple years or just ahead of its time sonically. Like it really sounds like the 80s are, is starting when you hear that record, the way that just everything from the way the drum sound to the, to the, to the kind of way he's combining genres already. And I, I know like 1999 is a more of an opus, you know, it's like, this is just kind of like getting started and moving towards that. But like you really do feel like he's 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 it's when you find him becoming effortless. He's he's a, the weird artist where you know he has a couple records that aren't as you know where he's still finding himself. Then this thing happens and it's just it's taking off. And then he goes on and basically like what a ten year run where it's just you know I mean there's a couple moments but it's pretty it's pretty astonishing. Up, Uptown is one of my favorite songs of all time too. It, as is I think you said something like this, Rob. Like only Prince, with all due respect to Minneapolis. Only Prince could turn Minneapolis into like the sexiest, most exciting place in the world. Minneapolis, sex city, I think you could. Well, that's like what John was just saying, that it presents this area of Minneapolis that it celebrates it as this just cultural utopia. Yesterday, I talked to Paul Westerberg um, for us, and he was, you know, from The Replacements, and he's talked about just seeing Prince and... And he talked about growing up in this like place where people were kind of reserved and people were kind of cautious. And he said, we both had to learn ways to get people to react. And we learned very different ways. Like he became like a <laughs> sex god and I became like this drunk Wyzak. Wyzak <laughs> but like we both kind of had to do it. And he talked about seeing shows. There's a g- really great story where it's actually in the replacements book. And he talked about a little where Tommy Stinson is watching a replacement show at First Avenue. I mean, a print show at First Avenue. He's standing next to Rick Ocasek and Prince does one of his things where he does like a Jimi Hendrix soul. Then he does the splits or whatever that he just you know jumps up and Tommy Stinson bangs on Rick Ocasek's backs and says top that fucker and it's just like one of these moments of like local pride like he was our guy you know and like and I, they, lo- I love that even the replacements appreciated Prince you never think of them in the same they covered thought, him yeah. A, a yeah. once in a while like in right. some of their drunken things and he talks about like he says you know when um, I Want to Be Your Lover came out it was because Minneapolis radio and Minneapolis in general just, it's segregated and the radio wasn't playing it he's like I heard there was this guy who had this hit who was local but I had to go buy it like it wasn't on the radio here even though it was a big hit so then I got it it blew my mind and it, he, he was a fan I'm not- 
you know, and, and Bob Mould also wrote a really loving tribute to him on, yeah. on, on it, it was the same thing, like, you know, I never really met him, which is weird because they played the same places they were around. Bob Mould of Husker Du, the other great Minneapolis punk band. And they kind of just writing about just like being in awe. And I think they were, everyone was just in awe of him. He was a such just the center of the community there in, in a lot of ways, even if he was a shy, reclusive presence, you know, who didn't like, he wasn't out, but, you know, being super visual. I mean, you'd see him at like, you know, he'd go to a Vikings game, he had a booth, you know, he'd go to a Timberwolves game or whatever, but huh. and he and people would, people were around him in, in different ways, but he, you know, he was such a presence. It's hard to imagine what it'll be like there without just knowing that he's kind of around. It's very strange. I loved your interview with Westerberg and that's on rollingstone.com right now. I encourage anyone, people to check it out because it really does place him as, I mean, as someone not from Minneapolis, it's aside from seeing Purple Rain, which I know probably wasn't the most true to life thing. It bad. wasn't a way, yeah. but I mean, it just, it placed him as someone who just lived in Minneapolis and walked around and rode his bike. And, we all and, rode our motorcycles it, out to Lake Minnetonka. I was just a rite of passage <laughs> growing up there. It's just something we all did. It's just kind of how we lived. That's the life there. Um, so, uh, last night I went to the bar in, in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Lake Street, where which is where the Minnesotans hang out in this neighborhood. And, and it was a, it had the local pride, which was an angle of prints that I didn't really like know so well. They had purple banners up and they were playing the movie on the screen. They had a big painting in the window and uh, Bobby from the Hold Steady was DJing all the Prince hits. And it was really funny to talk last night with so many people who had this really specific Prince experience being from his hometown and that local pride thing that, that you were saying. Yeah. He, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, whatever it's true. I mean, everyone, it's like, it's, he, uh, there was a huge, there was a really big local kind of funk pop kind of scene that he was the epicenter of. And it was interesting. Like people have connections to people. I mean, I was lucky enough when I was working back in Minneapolis at the local alt weekly to get to go to one of these Paisley park shows where he plays all night. And most people there have that experience. Like most, it's not, you hear about him, you go to him and it's most people who are involved in music there get to see these things. And you don't know, is he going to show up? Is what time's he going to show up? What's he going to do? But I mean, the one I saw, we got there at one, it was, no one was even there yet really. And it was weird. It was the Paisley Parks, this, you drive up there, it's it's in Chanhassen, which is about a 20 minutes outside of Minneapolis. And you see this weird kind of compound looking thing bathed in like lavender light, lavender neon light. Then you go in there and it's like, it's laid out, you know, he obviously he doesn't drink, he doesn't, you know, whatever. So it's laid out like almost like maybe like a formal or a Christian party for like used teens or something like that. There's like soda and water is all you can drink. And he has like laid out chips and dip for you to have if you want it. And then he goes on there and plays like funk covers for four hours. And it's just an astonishing thing to, to get to see. I got to see, I mean, that's, but that's a kind of a thing that most, I mean, most people who are into the local music scene have one of those nights. It's right. just, wow. Know. Well, John Dolan, thanks for coming on. Rob Sheffield, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, What's man. your favorite? Yeah, really. Oh, man. I, well, literally, Uptown. And I, I guess the thing to me, it's like, you, it's interesting because you had the experience of Uptown as a real place, you know, but as you kind of hit it at, at your, in your essay, Rob, it's like Prince also created his own Uptown. Like he created this place, like Uptown was like, uh, there was like no other artist, I feel like, that created their own world as powerfully as Prince. It's like he imagined this cultural utopia and became something that that took hold in people's imaginations. I mean, the only possible comparison, it's so weird, but it, I guess Bowie, right? I mean, like yeah. he's the right. American Bowie. Totally. Yeah, he was a unifier. You know, he really did. He brought in so many things. And as uh, 
Joe Levy, who's writing the cover story, pointed out, I mean, maybe that might account for some of his patch in the 90s, which was a little more difficult because a lot of music was fragmenting in the 90s. There wasn't as much. The 90s wasn't about music coming together as much. You know, people, grunge bands were grunge bands, you know, and it was great for fans because everybody had lots of different stuff to listen to, but you didn't, it was harder to jump from genre to genre. I actually kind of think with the 90s thing, what it's talking about cultural utopias and, and uptown and stuff like that is that he really, you know, after his, and it was well earned his disdain of the record industry, he turned inward, you know, and and did kind of turned away from the pop marketplace um, a little bit and and sort of became like, you know, doing these the albums that were a little more about him and his, his, the world he'd set up in Paisley Park, and they were a little more insular and, and they had moments, but like his 90s was a reaction to his 80s in a way that was, you know, I guess, I don't know what sort of problematic or something it's, it was a difficult but then he figured it out i think in his own way in the 2000s i feel like he really kind of came to terms with it and it, it those rent those run of incredible shows yeah his legacy he understood his like came down i mean it's weird to sort of work out your legacy at the super bowl but right. you know it's like he yeah. he totally did it <laughs> with the Foo fighters yeah. cover yeah i mean that it's still it's funny that's the thing people right. jump to the it was fun i don't know what you like last night i mean yes you were out i was like watching like, seeing what people were putting on like they put somebody put on him doing a lot of the Super Bowl thing, but also just these weird moments like that you can on YouTube, you can watch the, the performance of Purple Rain at First Avenue that became the version on the record, which is like 18 minutes long. Wow. And it starts with Wendy Mulvane like playing this the, the, the for ever and ever and ever. And obviously they did tons of overdubs and stuff like that. Somebody put on a version of just my imagination from Germany in like the 90s, which is amazing. It's been fun. It's like you just the community this is it's just I guess it's like Bowie, but the community that's kind of grown up around this moment is at least one of the things you can take from it that's kind of positive because that's obviously sort of pressing. Amen. Well, we've ranged well beyond what we're listening to, but there's really no other topic in the office right now than, than Prince. So, guys, thanks for coming on. Thank thanks, you. Nathan. We're going to get back to Prince, but first we're going to make a shout-out to our sponsor, Stamps.com. These days you can get practically everything on demand. Music, music news, this podcast... So why are you still leaving your place of work to make time-consuming trips to the post office when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official United States postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. So sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code MUSIC for this special offer. You're going to get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage, and a complimentary digital scale. Cool piece of hardware. So go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in music. That's stamps.com and enter music. You'll be showing us some love, and I feel like uh, we're pretty lucky to have gotten the promo code music, which is much cooler than TED Talks promo code. <laughs> I'm back here with Rob Sheffield and senior writer Brian Hyatt. Hey, Brian. Hi. Hey, Brian. We're going to talk to you, Rob. (laughs) Hello (laughs) to both of y'all. We're going to talk about a piece that's in the issue, which is coming out next week uh, by Brian, and is a portion of which is on um, RollingStone.com about uh, a lost Rolling Stone interview with Prince from a couple of years ago. 
Brian, you went to Paisley Park and spent a fair amount of time with Prince. This was going to be for a cover story, which never ran because we never ended up doing a shoot, but because Prince didn't want to do a shoot, (laughs) but you did all the reporting for it. Do you want to talk about what your experience was like? Yeah. You know, so Prince, you know, to be clear, Prince tried to provide us with a photo that he had taken himself that uh, our photo editor found unacceptable, and we were never able to uh, reach an agreement on that, so that's what happened there. Right. Uh, And then people asked, why didn't we run it inside the magazine? And the answer is, you know, it's actually really, it really hurts to say the answer, which is we thought we would, you know, we'd come up with another album, it would be time to do another cover, and then I would basically be able to do a part two to this interview, and, you know, be great, you know, I'd have this part. And so it just feels actually painful you know, I always thought we'd be saving it for another cover, but not this one. So, but anyway, so I mean, you know, the experience was incredible. Um, it was, and and I've been saying like all the more surreal in that I never got to write about it. I, I went from, you know, Paisley Park to doing like the next story, which I think was was I, I've looked back and it was actually Kiss. I went right to interview Kiss for their first cover, and so. And then, then I was doing that, and then this never happened. So I never got even started writing it. So it's it stood alone as this as this unique experience. And what it was, it was like seven hours at Paisley Park on an absolutely bitter cold winter day in in January 2014. And I, I came out there, and of course you come out there and you get to your hotel room and you wait for it to be summoned to Paisley Park. And then you're summoned. It's like, and they said it'll be around 7 p.m., which it was. You know, it didn't start at 2 a.m. It wasn't anything crazy like that. So I go out at 7 p.m. and, it, and you know, Paisley Park is this self enclosed world. It, it was at the time he had Third Eye Girl, which was his all-female power trio there. And there's a lot of tests before you talk to Prince. Like first you, <laughs> first I, I believe I had to talk to Third Eye Girl. And at one point he, I think, snuck up on us to listen to us talking to, to make sure I was, you know, that, that the vibes were good. And I apparently passed. And then there was another test where he um, took me to a mural that had pictures of I don't know. One of them was Grand Funk Railroad. There were a bunch of, you know, and, and then basically I was, I had to, Larry Graham was there. And it, basically I had to identify the photos. And then uh, I think had I not identified, you know, some of these people, I, I, I probably would have, I might have been out. Um, <laughs> it's hilarious that Grand Funk was there, of course. Um, but that was a band he saw early on. So, and then, you know, and so then we talked. Well, um, I, I yeah, do remember, yeah. you know, just from setting it up that, yeah. that uh, yeah, Third Eye Girl was a big priority for him. As all, you know, like Prince had such a history of bringing up groups, starting with like The Time and then Apollonia and Vanity. And, you know, he, it, they were his, you know. His, right. His, this was his, a cross his, between the revolution, a backing group, right. and then sort of its own thing as well. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. But he it was also very, it was a creative year for him, right? He had a funk record and a Third Eye Girl record. Whenever my sunshine so at that point, um, it's interesting. It was actually months later, if I remember correctly, that those albums actually came out. You know, so he played me the Third Eye Girl record, and then he started to play stuff from the other record, the solo record, and which I think wasn't quite a record at that point. It wasn't clear, and then he ended up putting them out together. Um, but he was very excited, and I've always said, like, you know, he took me up to his office, which was really just an office on the second floor, and there's this image. I mean, you know, he had so he literally had, just an just it like was an office. It was like staplers. A, it was, and, you know, yeah, and, it had a Xerox machine, and 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 uh, and the the best part for some reason, I'd never stopped finding this funny is that he, it was, he had a Dell computer, like a, with a big box, <laughs> with, a, with a big boxy shitty monitor, you know, and he's sitting, you know, and he's sitting and prints himself, just the two of us, and he sits there and he's like clicking the, like he wasn't like super great at using the computer, and he's just like sitting there like clicking, and he played it, I think, on like Windows Media Player, and and, and the, my favorite thing is that, first of all, he had his, his screensaver was like a somewhat chintzy shot from one of his recent albums. 
uh, like the cover of uh, whatever recent album, and then he put on the visualizer. You know that thing where it makes the like the designs. You know when it put, right. when it plays the music, he he put he he put that on. So we're looking at the the chintzy like Microsoft visualizer. That was your visual the, accompaniment. That, that was his. You know, like like you know when I first <laughs> right. I, I used to hear Prince songs, and it would be like you know uh, the the When Doves Cry video, and now it was the the Microsoft Windows visualizer and him right next to me. Uh, and so there was there was something. It was that incongruousness of the of the magic and also the mundane right. of, of you know this was his office that was his specific office but the whole thing was his office I mean Paisley Park was just his office it was the place where he did his work you know right right but then you got to see him play close yeah up. and then, I mean, then he was um, at some point he promised that you would only understand the sort of third eye girl experience and possibly the secrets of life itself if you felt the vibrations of them playing and, and it, in order to illustrate that he put me on stage about maybe two feet from him on a chair and uh, set the band up and played uh, actually a cover of a song from the Billy Cobham Jazz Fusion album, Spectrum, uh, and, and, and played it because we had been talking about it earlier and played a, a, like a absolutely blazing. This, by the way, is the album that has, as a side note, is, this is the influence that he and Eddie Van Halen shared. Uh, they both love this album, and it both has this kind of like blazing. I forgot the guitarist, but some you know one of those great guys, and it has this blazing fusiony guitar playing. That's why kind of why they sound somewhere sometimes when they play guitar. But so you know that exists in my memory as almost like a black hole because it was such an intense experience. I was two feet away from him playing. And, Just to and, break yeah, in, that's yeah. funny because Rob, you talk about Eddie Van Halen and, yeah. and Prince in your essay about how Van Halen kind of with jump took a little bit of Prince's style and then Prince came back with let's go crazy, right? And kind of yeah. took Van Halen style. So there, there was Utopian sort of, sharing of Right. Yes. There was it's, a conversation there, yeah. But yeah, and and then it turns out that they, yeah, they did share some, uh, you know, is it, that's where they came wonder, together. Was, was that John that's McLaughlin? I believe it was McLaughlin, yes. That, yeah, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, yeah. yeah who they of both course, liked. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's the common, I think I learned that because he was talking about it and I said, well, you know, Eddie Van Halen, you know, so that that's the kind of, that's that's where they meet, you know, which is, of course, fascinating. That's a, I, lo- I love that record. I, I looked up what, what Robert Criscow or whatever said about the record, and they're like, you know, total shit. <laughs> but I, I, I got into that record actually after reading about uh, – I I'd got into it previously, and then so I was able to talk to Prince about it. It's, it's a real musician's musician record. Anyway, so – and then after that first song, he's like, you know, not, now you can go in the audience. And he played me a couple <laughs> – so, right, so what was that was experience though? Like, yeah. I mean, like, no, no, I mean, it, it's, it honestly is hard to talk or write about because of the – like I said, of the white-hot intensity of it. Especially that first song when I was on stage, it just, it just you know, blew my hair back. It, it just was uh, – yeah, I mean, you know, because that was an instrumental. So it was just him playing guitar. And, you know, I, he's one of my favorite, favorite guitar players of all time. And uh, and then it was you know listen that band was very powerful I think it lacked you know it was it was only one piece of what he did of course the right. third eye girl you know la- that's why he had a funk band at the same time you know they right. didn't have the 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 funk but there was a real power to it in a way and it and it actually was unique because you know the revolution didn't have like a John Bonham esque drummer so it, it there was to his great great credit he was still pioneering new ground towards the end you know he he because he had done rock but he'd never done like that kind of rock like the rock that's like cream you know uh which might not play to all the strength but still you know right well we we were talking earlier about him being this unifier and you know it 
so many people were so happy for him to do the other stuff at that time, the funk stuff that was really well reviewed, and he came out with some more funk, you know, the, the next year. Uh, and he could have just kept doing that, but he never let go of that that kind of unifying perspective. You know, so playing rock and other types of music was always very much part of him, you know, and jazz too. Yeah, no, I mean, I think some of the in some biographies and stuff, they get a little confused about that rock was grafted on later as an interest. But he talked to me about seeing both Grand Funk and Fleetwood Mac, you know, before his first album came out. Actually, his description of he he got waxed really lyrical about the beginning of the Fleetwood Mac concert and the and the beginning of the chain, which also helped explain later why. So I guess he basically that's when his crush on Stevie Nicks started, uh, uh, you know, who they they later, you know, had, you know, per, a perhaps platonic, I don't know, relation, but they, they certainly knew each other quite well in the, in the 80s. But just hearing him describe it in this really odd, you know, and, and that was in general one of the things is, is, you know, he was as passionate and convincing a music fan as anyone I've ever spoken to in my life. When he spoke about music, he made me want to listen to whatever he was talking about, even if it was stuff I already loved. And you know, he was Prince, but he he also was like a, a real fan of, of music and comedy, and he, he talked about all sorts of things with the kind of passion and intensity of a fan. That was fascinating. Which contradicts a lot of people's image of him as not someone who's who is just kind of someone off in his castle and not engaged in the culture. Yes, I mean for sure. At the same time, he he was disconnected from current music, to be sure. I mean, he, he he talked about listening. He didn't like listening to current pop music. I think at some point, he definitely kind of drew the gates down. He was he was like, as a writer, do you ever read something and, and start rewriting in your head? I was like, yes, yeah, sometimes. He's like, well, basically, I do that always with music. You know, like I start producing it in my head and it drives me crazy, which is, you know, that's an intense thing. I don't know about that. But, but and you know, and then so he said he listens to stuff like, uh, he said Cocteau Twins and like the Notebook soundtrack. Uh Wow. Uh, so, What's even on that? Yeah, it's wow. an orchestral. Yeah. He liked okay. listening to orchestral soundtracks. Okay. Uh, um, and he liked Children of a Lesser God, too. And it's one of those things you don't quite know what to do with. Right, <laughs> but, right. But I think it was just, you know, I, I guess, who knows? I don't, I don't know. Who am I to question that? I can see the Cocteau Twins. Cocteau Twins is one thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. They did have an album called The Pink Opaque, which is <laughs> very Prince kind of album title. <laughs> um so some of the things that people have reacted to, readers have reacted to from your piece are, for one, he talked about some uh, archival stuff that he was going to release. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of well known that he's, had, you know, I think everyone knows he had unbelievable amounts of material in his vaults. Um, and, and you know, but what he did is he got a little bit specific and said that, you know, he has a, a full, a couple re- albums with the revolution in the vault, which is, I mean, you know, I mean, that, that, mind that's blowing. absolutely yeah. mind blowing. It's, it's like, I mean, that's not super different to me than hearing that there's like two full Beatles albums that they never really, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. like it, it's, it, it, you know, and it's, it's like pretty casual the way he, re- and he even said that like, I didn't even give the best songs to the record company sometimes, which is like, I mean, if true, I mean, I've really been saying this the past couple of days. It's like, you know, if all this stuff comes out, it might prompt a real reevaluation, not that he needs it, but like, you know, where, where people really start to realize the the breadth and depth and power of, of what he did because it, we, you know in 10 years we may well have double the amount of Prince music that we have now and it, and it's not going to be a situation uh, with like with Hendrix and stuff where the, like half of it is re-recorded or, or, or second right. rate it may be I'm listening in my opinion you know the Springsteen when he came up with tracks he has songs that are just as good or better as his un, as his released material, and I, I think that Prince is probably in the same situation, at least I probably mean, this, more this so. Is the guy who sat on the Black Album for yes, yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, and he he put so many of his greatest songs on B sides and yeah. soundtracks, yeah. and he would hunt them down and be so excited when he found them and thought, "This is a song he didn't even put on the album." I mean, the most obvious example is 
Erotic City, which yeah, so would have been like one of the two or three best songs on Purple Rain. And he just left it off the album. There's a certain Dylan-esque perversity in that kind of thing, right? <laughs> right. It, 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 I think he enjoyed that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You said there, there's one other aspect of your story that people were reacting to online that you mentioned earlier. Well, uh, well there's a few things. I mean, there's, you know, we, we talked about, um, about celibacy because he was, you know, he was celibate. Um, although he said, you know, that he's not perfect. So I guess it was something, you know, but, but he talked about in terms of fasting, you know, he compared it, which, you know, was also something he did. Like he literally would go, he, he was, you know, casually talked about, you know, on the fourth day of fasting, you don't miss food anymore. So, I mean, he experimented with, you know, deprivation. And the, the celibacy was a religious thing, but it was more than that. He talked about rechanneling the energy. And, you know, it's obviously a strange thing for Prince of all people to talk about celibacy. That said, he was surrounded. He had a, a sort of coterie of uh, female singer-songwriters that he was in constant contact with. One of them, uh, you know, the, the Skyping in, all beautiful, all young, and it, but it was all, you know, it, it was at that point celibate, you know. <laughs> Interesting. I one quote that I thought was fascinating was when he started talking about Woody Allen and how Woody Allen is so prolific and he does movies all the time and every three you get a masterpiece. And I thought that that was just so self-aware of him, too, because he was so prolific. And it was something that people knocked him for a lot. Um, and I had never seen him say something about that, about his own output. I mean, I think, yeah, of course, it's only by implication. But yes, he, you know, what he was saying really is that you needed to get it from your head into the material world, the stuff, that, and then you could judge it. And so some of that, you know, he might imply that maybe he's not releasing, in his mind, maybe he's only releasing what he thinks was the best of it. It's unclear. You know, right. The, the, so it's but, unclear but, if he thought of himself. Sure. As, yeah. But 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 he was saying that, that you know, it's, it's just like, that's why I need to record so much because it's in his head, but he can't judge it until it's out there. Um, and so that that's what a lot of his process but was. I, it, I, yeah. I mean, maybe whether he acknowledged it or not, I do see the similarities between him and Woody Allen because both of them in later in their career are comfortable with doing kind of genre things, you know, like Woody Allen is comfortable with doing bullets over Broadway or smaller movies, movies that aren't aiming to find out the meaning of life. And Prince was happy to do a jazz record and do something, you know, and, and he, every once in a while you'd hit on something amazing. It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's also, it's also funny to, you know, just thinking about him watching Woody Allen movies is also funny for some reason. <laughs> like, but, but, you know, he loved it. And he also waxed lyrical about, you know, he was actually complaining about that Eddie Murphy apparently said to him like a few years ago, I saw a show and he was like, Eddie apparently said to him, man, it's not like it was in the 80s. And Prince took spectacular offense at that. But, <laughs> but then he went on, then he did go on to, you know, he started praising Nutty Professor and he was like a film critic. He was, he was talking about the virtuosity of it and how he just disappeared into the, and it, it was, it was interesting to hear. I mean, he really got into like, like what, you know, the, the, the studying yeah, the, yeah, the, Nutty the, the details of what, what, of what Eddie did in the Nutty Professor, which, which I'm sure Eddie would greatly appreciate. <laughs> well, a longer piece about your visit to Paisley Park and kind of your lost interview with Prince is going to be in the next issue of Rolling Stone. And I encourage everyone to, to check it out. Brian Hyatt. Thanks for coming. Cool. Thank you for having me. And you too, Rob. <laughs> and we're going to end this podcast with a special edition of Reader Mail. We're going to do something a little different where we are going to read some of the letters that we got from our Prince cover story from 1984, which features a famous Richard Avedon shot of Prince, kind of his armpit, kind of with no shirt on, uh, with his arm up. I'm here with Andy Green. Hi. 
Hey, Andy. We're going to talk a little bit about just the context of this cover, which is pretty famous. And I mean, at the time, people forget how provocative Prince was. Yeah, he was seen as sort of a deviant by a lot of parents and everything, you know, because songs, because there were many of his songs had really strong sexual overtones. And they were, they were at the time, it was kind of shocking to a lot of people. I'm going to read one letter. Uh, okay. This is from Alan H. Shearer in Scotts Valley, California. First, the Go-Go's in their underwear, which is a great <laughs> reference. Yes. Uh, the Go-Go's had just been on the cover. And now Prince's armpit. My only regret is that the cover didn't come complete with scratch and sniff. Oh. Ugh. Keep up the quality work. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they, that kind of underlines that. Yeah, it's, it's, this is the period in which MTV was really starting to take off and drive music sales. And it was getting more visual and people, and it was shocking some people. Well, you mentioned earlier that Tipper Gore started the PMRC. Yes, yes. Because of Prince. Yeah, there's songs like Darling Nikki that kids were listening to that in the minds of people like Tipper Gore were really, they were scandalizing, you know, all the youth of the country. She took me to her castle and I just couldn't believe my eyes. She had some and for people who are too young to remember, that was one of the first real kind of uh, – that that was the first organized movement to get kind of a rating system on mm -hmm. records. This yeah. is before pop records had any sort of explicit rating. Right. So they opted in the end for a voluntary system, if I recall. Right. Uh, but all that did was drive sales further because that sticker on the CD was sort of a sign that that was a cool album. So the whole thing backfired in insane ways, really. Right, and then they, they didn't even know what was coming with NWA. Oh, right, yeah, they had no idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if they thought Prince was dirty, they had no clue what was coming. Right. Two live crew in a few years or something. I mean, it was. But but of course not everybody was uh, so unhappy with our, our Prince uh, covers back in the day. This is from Christy Huggins, Sumter, South Carolina. Finally, a decent article on a super sexy man, Prince. I was in awe of the sensual cover photo and the inside pictures. I haven't felt so mesmerized by a musician since Peter Frampton. <laughs> I want more, more, more. Amen, Christy. Yeah, that's a that's a cool reminder that Frampton at one point was was the most famous musician on the planet for about six months. Very attractive man. Very attractive man, <laughs> and like Prince was a was a awesome guitar player. I'm seeing yeah. all sorts of parallels here. Yeah, there are not before. many parallels, but. <laughs> We're going to wrap up our special time capsule edition of Reader Mail. Thanks for listening to Rolling Stone Music Now and our special edition on Prince. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us at the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.